0: Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles from a company called B-Squared and I am the host of the Sendcast, the podcast for special educational needs. Each week we'll be talking about a different topic within the world of special educational needs to improve our knowledge, to provide support to professionals working in schools and to empower parents. On this week's podcast we'll be discussing how to support children with emotionally based school phobia or avoidance, often referred to as school refusal. My guest this week is Dr. Tina Ray, Tina is a consultant psychologist with over 30 years' experience working with children, adults, and families. Now, as well as this podcast, B Squared also run the Virtual SEND Conference and Parent Talks. The Virtual SEND Conference is a conference for schools that runs twice a year. It is a virtual conference, so the conference comes to you over the internet. We record every session, and this means you can watch the videos whenever you need to, and they are available on demand. You can purchase access to future or past events. For more information, visit www.virtualsendconference.com. At the end of the episode, I'll be giving a discount code so you can save some money when you purchase access. Now on with the podcast. In this week's show, we're discussing how to support children with emotionally-based school phobia or avoidance. Notice I didn't say school refusal. Discussing with this with me is Dr. Tina Ray, a consultant psychologist. Tina has supported children, adults and families for over 30 years. She's currently working as a consultant, educational and child psychologist in a range of SEBD, SEMH and mainstream contexts, including compass fostering, supporting foster care carers, social workers and looked after children. She has held many positions in many places, including a trustee of the Nurture Group Network and is a member of the editorial board for the journal Emotional and Behavioral Difficulties and for the International Journal of Nurture and Education. She has written over 100 publications. I'll be sharing some of these in the show notes at the end. Welcome to the show, Tina.
1: Welcome to you too. Thank you very much for asking me again.
0: <laughs> oh, nice. Welcome, It's a great topic. There are lots of children with emotionally based school phobia or avoidance. That term, school refusal, makes it sound like a choice. They're simply choosing and simply refusing to go to school. In reality, these children cannot cope with school. It can cause huge anxiety and other mental and physical health issues. Just not refusing, isn't it? It's, it's no. I really cannot cope with school. It's going to make me ill. It's going to have this effect on me. It's huge issues it's causing.
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's really important. I mean, what you've just said, it's so important to use the right kind of language and check Our narratives, because as soon as you say refusal, that implies that child has made a considered choice to say, I am not going, i.e., that is more like truancy from my perspective. So you've got to distinguish between the two. And also unpick what it is underneath us, because, you know, we know all behaviour's got meaning. It, It means something. It's a form of communication. So by emotionally based school avoidance is what I prefer to call it, then you're dealing with someone who's got heightened levels of anxiety. And there's a very real reason it's causing them a lot of emotional, psychological, physical pain in their attempts to go to school. So from my perspective, it's really important not to say, refusal and to move away from that term it's it's kind of stuck in the old behaviourist models you know and it's just not helpful to our kids because I think you know some people if you really are going to be sympathetic and supportive and authentic with children you've got to understand emotionally what the impact is on them in terms of levels of anxiety and I think particularly given that we're in this pandemic at the moment, this has become a really hot topic. I'm being asked consistently to provide support, just training, webinars, all sorts of things, and one-to-one stuff with parents and carers around their kids not wanting to go back into school. And I think it's it's increased considerably for children with special educational needs, many of whom have um experienced a much less traumatic and stress free time, some of them at home. So going back in again, this is this has kind of generated those feelings of anxiety. so it it does the language matters. what we how we describe it really matters because we attach meaning to those words.
0: yeah, and I think you mentioned about sort of coming back to school after Covid after all this lockdown. Some of it is definitely going to be linked to returning to that environment. And they've had that break. So they can now sort of themselves realize, actually, that's really not a good place for me. I can't cope. I've got various issues. It was uncomfortable. It made me ill. You've got all those. But you've also got the aspect of they've been living, following the rules, social distancing, keeping to their bubbles, the rule of sick, all that. sort. Of, they kept themselves. And suddenly they're expected to go into classrooms where the washing isn't happened, the distancing isn't happened, and and that aspect can also have an impact and make people feel they don't want to be in school as well because people aren't following the rules that everyone should be
1: yeah and i mean if you've got any element of you know ocd so obsessive compulsive disorder and you know you've been trying really hard not to keep washing your hands all the time this has been something that you've been trying to train yourself out of obsessively Or if you've got um, separation anxiety, you've got other phobias and those are going to be exacerbated at this time on on transition back. And lots of the stuff that made them feel safe all of a sudden is kind of being taken away. As you said, being with lots and lots of other people again, well, you know, even though you're in a bubble that's smaller, perhaps in, in primary, it's still, you know, walking up and down the corridors in high school. My um, next door neighbour who's an art teacher in our local high school. So, you know, it's that transition between those lessons for some of the kids, particularly with ASD and high levels of anxiety, that's been incredibly stressful going back and they're not coping. They're not managing it really well at all.
0: Because you are, in my daughter's school, when they change lessons, I think they, I'm pretty sure they wear masks. So when they trans change, the mask, masks. But you are going through corridors where you're brushing past people, you're in a big mass of people, completely no control, no distancing. It's just not good. And in my daughter's secondary school, I think there's been six cases. And that means that in my, one of my daughter's classes, there's only uh, six children in her tutor group who are in school. You're especially in that situation where certain children need to know who they're being taught. They need that relationship. They need that trust. Those teachers they know are disappearing, being left with supply teachers. That will give people heightened anxiety. They don't know them, don't understand their needs. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's a recipe for disaster at the moment.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really concerned because a lot of the stuff that we would say you need to ensure when you're transitioning back, and particularly for kids who've got school avoidance, um, emotionally based school avoidance, is predictability, authentic, consistent relationships, time to talk with those people that you've bonded with when you feel anxious, teaching self-regulation, all, all of the things that we would do to support a child or young person, unfortunately, are much more complex and tricky to do within the context of the pandemic and that predictability is absolutely crucial. Knowing exactly what's coming next, who's going to be teaching me, what is expected of me—all the stuff that you know you would you would do for a child with ASD, for example, is exactly the same for a child with heightened levels of anxiety or school focused yeah. anxiety. So I, I think it's really, really important to flag up that needs to be a much more bespoke approach at this current time, and we we really do have to identify and highlight these kids as quickly. As possible, because the other thing that is concerning to me is that the longer a child is out of school and fearing, you know, trapped in that cycle of anxiety, it reinforces it for them that, you know, I I avoid the thing that I'm frightened of, which is school. So therefore, my anxiety subsides. But the problem is that I then start thinking about school again and having to go, my anxiety increases. So then I don't go because I don't want to face up to it. And I think, you know, we're going to see far more children who get trapped in that. And we need to intervene as early as possible and make sure that there is the right level of support. And it you know has to be a much more flexible approach at this point in time, I think.
0: I I think that's right. I think there needs to be a, a, a change in approach that... I think once the child is off school, once they are in that school avoidance school phobia, it, it's kind of damage is being done that's created. So you, you need to think about, okay, if children are struggling, if children are, and they maybe miss a day or two, you really need at that point, that should be a big alarm bell.
1: Yeah.
0: That Actually, we need to change how we're dealing with this. And I think, especially when you think of truancy and your attendance and schools being judged, and then you go into some schools and they have graphs for their average attendance and there's a lot of pressure. Yeah. When someone's in this, they're starting to miss school, and parents might say that he's refusing to go in, and then parents again might see that the child doesn't want to go, and they might use that term "refusing," or they might say he, that he's not coming; he's not, he can't cope. Mm-hmm. The school should be hearing that and go, "Okay, something's not right here. We need to look at and find out what the cause is and work at how we change it." Yeah, I don't know what the answer is for because it will be something different. It could be lots of different things. It could be where they're sitting in the classroom, who they're sitting next to, if they're in a primary school. It could be, there's lots of strange things that you will not be able to identify mm. unless you are that child in that situation because the way they perceive the world or how it appears from where they're sitting, they're struggling. There's lots of things which will cause things that you might be completely unaware of but can cause huge issues for that child. It could be the unstructured times. It could be a plain time be dinner, t- it could be all those times where it's not structured. It's just lots of things. It's making sure you are going to think about and investigate and really try and pull back while he's causing these issues and try and address them so they don't become that sort of long term not coming into school. And I know someone who they were having nightmares because the way the school dealt with it meant that that child was then having nightmares about the head teacher coming to get him. So how someone deals with it at that stage can either calm it or if you take, try and take that hard line approach, mm. it makes the situation so much worse. Yeah. You are literally saying if you come in, it's now going to be even less enjoyable because we're kind of punishing you for this. So you've really got to actually make it a gentler slope.
1: Yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I just think you should never, ever be punishing a kid who's displaying symptoms of anxiety and trauma. That's, you know, so counterproductive. They need nurture. They need safe base. They need to feel that people are actually listening to them. And if you, right at the start of this process... You talk about, you know, you need to find out well, that the assessment part of supporting the kids is an absolutely crucial step. And that really takes a lot of work in some instances because you've got to talk to the parents, find out their perspective, how they see it, the teachers in the school, any support staff and the child themselves. And you put all that information together to get a really good, well-informed picture of what is really going on for that kid. And very often, I think, when people say, oh, well, we talk to the kid, Find out what's going on for that child. That won't work if you just spend 20 minutes with them. You've got to develop a relationship. So, you know, over a few weeks or however long it takes, you are actually getting that child to really express their fears, their anxieties, and feeling safe to do so. Because then, you know, this is where we're going to start. And this is how we're going to start to get you back into school. And, and, you know being pejorative and reinforcing that the level of shame and guilt and distress that they feel is really really counterproductive it doesn't happen by a sort of magic wand system where you just get back in very often this takes a lot longer you need to do it as soon as possible but you mustn't flood the child i would say please avoid flooding because if you if you overload them and expect too much it's about saying right you know i've talked about the anxiety ladder a lot before the fear is at the top of that of being in that closet classroom or going into school or walking through the school gates but at the bottom of it you know bit by bit you're going to find out the first steps or the second steps that child might take and it may be that just getting into the front door into the reception area as a first step for a couple of weeks and then it might be that they go to one or two lessons first thing in the morning or they pick the lessons that they feel secure in and it's gradual it's worth the investment over time because then you can actually gradually build that confidence and what people need to understand is very often that confidence and ability to get into school has been chipped away at over time so it's not just going to, there's not going to be one little thing like, oh, you can go and sit next to your friend. That's going to reduce your anxiety. It's going to be much more complex than that for a lot of our kids, really.
0: If they have that that anxiety chipped away, they might feel that, okay, this is fine, but how long will it last? They they want to see other changes. And just one thing to touch on when you talk about having those conversations, you need to plan those conversations around the child, not around you. So mm-hmm. My nephew hasn't been in school for two and a half years and the senko chose to have that meeting at the end of the day. So at the end of the day, he had to go and talk to the senko, and his friends would only wait so long. So therefore he knew he just had to give the right answer, the shortest answer, the quickest answer that they wanted to hear to get out of that room as quickly as possible. So in a situation like that, he's never going to actually open up and have a conversation because he doesn't want to be in that room because he'd rather be walking home with his friends. If you end up finding time, but actually they're coming out of class during their favorite activity, Mm. they're not going to want to be there. So you've got to really make, find out when is a good time for that child. And it might be that they're more relaxed after lunch or finding out when they are going to be the most engaged with what you're trying to do and having that conversation. And choosing that time, even if it's a really bad time for you because of various other things, that's when you've got to have that conversation with the child because if you do it at other times, it's going to be ineffective and you won't make much progress. You won't create that relationship. You won't find out how they're feeling and where those issues are. You'll just be fighting other things they're dealing with. Mm. So it is really important working out when is that correct time to have those conversations because it does take, there's a lot of trust for someone to open up to a school, if they're having anxiety and they're struggling with school, to then be able to talk to someone in that school, that's huge. That's going to take a long time. It might not happen. And one thing that I want everyone to just think about is if the child is appearing fine in school and the parents are saying he's not coping, he's struggling and all of this at home, listen to the parents. They are masking yeah um, they are just presenting what you want to do they are conforming to the world you want them to conform because they found it easier even if it hurts even if it causes them huge mental pain physical pain various things like that they feel they have to a lot of them will feel they have to conform and then when they get home they explode they have migraines mm-hmm. they have huge outbursts they just can't cope and that's what the parents deal with because at school, they're trying to make teachers happy. And you, you, you say, a lot of parents will say that. Everyone meets your child and goes, Oh, she's so lovely. He's amazing. He's so wonderful. In your head, you're going, He <laughs> really isn't. But you see that even just with normal children, they know how to behave when it's expected of them. When they're at home, they're more relaxed. They are those little horrors. They are do these things. They annoy you. They do all that. People who do that masking, it's just a much bigger version. They really are conforming. So, when parents say we're not struggling at home or it's this, please listen to them. Don't dismiss it because you don't see it.
1: Mm, I think that's an absolute essential. I mean, and that's why part of the process of assessment for EBSA is that you involve the parents at the outset. You've got to listen to their views because very often that, again, that goes missing the voice of the child, the voice of the parent. This is where, you know, you're going to get the most honesty and the most authentic picture of what is really, really happening. And the number of girls in particular that I've worked with who have masked beautifully, they know exactly how to do it. And the stress that that engenders at the end of the school day. So then you get the total meltdowns and the real catastrophizing moments at home where they lock themselves in their room and they refuse to speak to people, or they're just really rude and abusive to the person who loves them the most, possibly. It's really difficult. I mean, I I had a conversation two weeks ago with a mum who was saying that there was nothing more heartbreaking than every day um, since the start of this term, her little eight-year-old son has crept into her bed in the morning, and he's just sobbing his heart out, begging that he doesn't have to go to school. And she said to me, well, what the hell do I do? Because I end up crying as well. And I don't feel in control and I can't bear to see him in this much pain and getting to the bottom of it. He's frightened at the moment, but he's also experienced some bullying. It wasn't addressed in the school. And she said, well, the best will in the world, the school are now saying to me, school staff, some of them, that it's me. I'm complicit. I'm condoning this. And she said, well, actually, hand on heart, to some extent I am, because until they sort it out and I feel safe for my son... Why would I choose to let him go back into that school context? It's so much more complicated than people feel. And this blame game that goes on between home and school is something that this is why I think sometimes you need an outside agency. Someone taking on a role of advocating for the parent and the child with the school, but making sure that they triangulate so that it's not like they're taking sides per se, but they are making sure everyone's voice is heard. Because what that mum doesn't need is she doesn't need to be vilified by school staff who say, oh, it's just another neurotic, nice middle class twee mummy, yummy mummy who's going over the top. And this is exactly what she thinks they perceive her to be. I would be very interested to talk to the inclusion manager, the SENCO, the mental health lead, the head teacher, and see what they really do because I have heard conversations like that in passing in the staff room that have really distressed me where someone's just, I've heard the label, oh, well, look at the mum and da-da-da, and you think, hold on a minute. These are people here. They deserve our respects. Who are we here for? We're here for that child. We're here to make sure these kids feel safe, nurtured, and that they can learn we're not here to judge and we're here to work in partnership with those parents carers to make this really happen and really work for them you know so I do think that there are some huge issues around our perceptions and again the language how are we describing each other how are we interpreting or misinterpreting each other's behaviors in our attempts to nurture and support the child
0: just two things i want to touch on there so on a previous podcast with lana grant uh whose parent who's gone through this i mentioned about one of the things you can do and it sounds horrible and it's one of those things it will probably be really hard to do but if your child is having a meltdown is put your phone on record put it up on the shelf and record however long that lasts it sounds heartless and lana did this and someone said, "How could you do that?" And it's like, and it's, it's the only way people could believe and see how her child was at home. This is what a day at school has turned my child into. People just so they look at school and they look at they what they perceive as school as being fine. And I, I do think, and sorry, teachers, but I do think sometimes you have a weird perspective of enjoyment because you seem to love doing things with hundreds of children, singing and musical instruments and recorders. Sorry, but it's just, I sit there and I I drop my kids off at stuff and I look at these teachers and they seem to be smiling and I'm literally going, "You, this is my idea of hell. Mm. 500 children in a sports hall singing Mm. is just my idea of absolute hell. And you see these teachers who are somehow smiling still. It's amazing. I don't know how you do it. But I do think it is that if, if a child isn't comfortable, rather than just saying, oh, stop being silly, we've got to start saying... Why? What is it? Why are they seeing the world differently? Why are they understanding? Why are they perceiving this different? You've just got to start taking that idea of, okay, rather than just dismissing, why? Why is it like this? Why are you feeling like this? And, and accepting it. And sometimes a school is unable to provide what this child needs. Yep. You have to get external. It's not saying we need to do this. Well, we just can't. And that's that you have that whole balance. That's where you really need to get the head teacher involved. You need to find out where the issues are, get the head teacher involved, get external agencies involved and work out what that plan is. But that all has to start from, okay, this child does need some support, does need something different. It could be long-term. It could be short-term. There's lots of things in there. And one thing, Harold Welsh said on another previous podcast, there's a really interesting thing. And it was touching what you said about, oh, judging those parents and you hear those conversations is ang harris says stop doing that stop carrying those conversations because one person had interaction has now tainted that parent through the school absolutely yeah and it might have just been a complete and you will get you then just by hearing that conversation you will see that parent in your head you're going oh it's a difficult one Mm -hmm. and you will then immediately discount everything she says or he says You really should go into every conversation believing what that person is telling you as being true, that that is happening, their child is feeling that. And that's one thing I I do really hate in schools, school schools, and I know it, it must be really hard to deal with and there are limited options, but when you go in with your child and your child has been bullied, this has happened, and they just say, really, quite simply, there's no bullying in this school. We're really good at that, dealing with it. And you're like, mm-hmm. well, obviously, you're not. It's it's just, it's a little token phrase. Every school just seems to pull out in that situation. Mm-hmm. And as a parent, you're sitting there going, "No." Mm-hmm. And it'll be nice if you say, "We're normally really, really good at this, but it sounds like this hasn't been right." Yeah. Just change that line. Just change that line slightly. Say, "We really try. We're not perfect." Be a bit accommodating, be a bit not this didn't happen or your child's making this up. And yeah, there are things, there are very limited, especially in smaller schools where single form entry, you can't move children, there's lots of things. But when schools say there is none of this happening and yet someone else in the school knows fully well this is a constant thing, it's been going on for years, it's low level, it doesn't mean it has no effect on these children, it has big effect. Mm.
1: I think the thing is that there's something about staff you know we talk about children masking. I'd say that I've seen a lot of teachers in school who've had to do likewise and had to toe a certain line and you know politically sometimes we don't know quite what's going on, how we present or we, we're sorted we we don't have bullying in this school, etc that kind of narrative. It's hard sometimes to be really open and authentic and show your vulnerability. I remember saying when I was – I talked for over 16 years and I remember saying to a parent one day, do you know what, I don't really know how to handle this. I was working in an EBD school at the time and I was finding it really, really difficult and this kid was pushing all my buttons, you know. And there are times when you've just got to be authentic and say, no, I I didn't do that very well. I found that really How How do you manage this at home? And this is that whole point about learning from each other and being open to that. And, you know, I think particularly now, given what we're all going through, we need that more than ever. And I need, you know, if I'm teaching someone or I'm the parent, I need to be self-regulated. I need to be open and honest. I need to put my hand up when it's not working for me or there's something wrong. Or when I see a kid in distress and I think this is not right, rather than try and bury stuff and hide it and mask it, you know, it's, it's just going to increase the difficulty and the problems. And the moment that me as a professional... I show my vulnerability, I show that I'm open to learn new stuff or to admit mistakes or to say, I need help with this. I need help to support this child. What's the best way to do it? What are you doing? What works for you? You know, it's that joint endeavour together that we need to really focus on. I think it is important because I don't think it's easy for anybody, but I don't think going down the rule of protectionism or masking is helpful to anybody.
0: No. Yeah, I think very it's very, very political all of this actually caring and looking after is counterintuitive to getting your league table position achieved. That's a big problem. Um, one thing I would say at the moment when we think about children in your classroom, and we've said this before quite a few times, is just being aware, especially if in primary school, if you know your children, you know when they change. And that's one of the things in my daughter's primary school, although she's left and gone to secondary, the teachers were moving up with the children. So they were going to come back to the same teacher. Oh, it's fantastic. So yeah. that yeah. meant that teacher knew the child, the child knew the teacher. So there's a whole lot of familiarity, different classroom, but same teacher who already knows them. And that means that this term, that teacher can look at those kids, know when children have changed, that this child's become quieter. Absolutely. Or this child's a bit more disruptive. Or this child is now all of a sudden late every morning. And that is the early signs. That's the start of this. It doesn't just go one day. I can't cope. It's little things build up. And right now, we're really in that point where children are going to start, are going to be not coping. They're going to betray it in different ways. The parents might not be aware. There's just lots of things that actually, especially like older children in secondary and year six, where they often, or maybe younger, where they walk to school on their own. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: They might leave at the right time, but now they're suddenly late because they're dawdling because they don't want to get to school. They know because they've got to conform. They've got their mum who wants them to go to school. We want to make their mum happy. They've got to go to school, all this lot. So they they go to school, but they really don't want And that's just, it's the start of things. It's how this all starts. Mm -hmm. Um, And it goes downhill from there. So it's finding out now for those children, what are their issues? What is it they're struggling with? What is it they're not coping with? What is it they're worried about? And finding out all that information has starting to have those conversations. I think is really important before it starts to escalate.
1: Yeah. And I mean, getting in, as I said earlier, is preventative. You've got to get in earlier. And parents know and we know, and I think there needs to be systems in school to flag up. So you need your EBSA checklist. I've written a book for um, Hinton House. I did it over the summer during this pandemic because I knew that this was going to be a big issue for our kids going back. And in that, I've included a checklist for just flagging up certain issues that kids might display, problems they might display around anxiety, just those things about coming in late, the stuff that you're going to pick up on. And, you know, to be honest, it takes about 10 minutes to do it for each kid. You can do that just sitting down, watching in front of the telly, sorry, you know, because I know that's how I work very often, but you can do it quite quickly, relatively quickly, but also, you know, supporting parents around helping their kid to regulate helping them to calm down, helping them to manage anxious feelings. And then having like your Sunday evening plan where you actually put a concrete plan in place to support your child, to get everything ready for the next day so that you're limiting your level of anxiety and you're calm enough. So the next morning on the Monday, you get up that bit earlier, the school bag is packed, everything's out there ready in the hall to take in the car or on the bus. You plan what you might listen to in the car going to school or what you're going to talk about. You you actually, at the end of the day on Sunday, you think about three good things or something pleasant. You you know play some calm in music, but you actually have a concrete plan in place for your child going forward. Because what I felt all the way through this was parents – are desperate to just get a little bit of extra support and help. Again, you know, what is it that I can do? Because actually they're feeling overwhelmed when they go into school. Then of course they present as feeling overwhelmed and that, Transfers to the teacher, who, let's face it, is also definitely feeling overwhelmed at the moment. So at the moment, this whole thing about us all masking and people covering it up—it's not just the kids; it's it's us around the child. So
0: we've got to be very clear to look after ourselves and each other. You know, very important. That touching on choosing the music on the way to school, and you might sit there and go, "That sounds like a, such a small thing." I've experienced that change on Saturday morning, taking my daughter to football. So yeah. I I was the coach. My daughter played football and some days she was really on form. Other days she wasn't. And it is like, she didn't want to be the other day. She was having a, it's amazing. And then a song came on one day and she, and we listened to this song rather loudly on the way to football and played it on repeat. And she got to football and played amazingly. And it was like, it just helped her have a bit of enjoyment, not worry about what's coming. It just separates, takes them away from what's about, And I know that sounds really odd, but it did really work for my daughter, just actually a music. And we would just have a bit of fun in the car on the way. So it wasn't like you get in the car and it's the same morning music, adverts, weather and news. And the kid's just going, oh, I'm going yeah. to school. I'm not looking forward to it too. Taking the worry, because often with worry, worry is often worse than the event. Like yeah. Worrying about your GCSE results, worrying about A-levels, worrying about something. Generally, you worry, worry, worry. You get then you're like, oh, it's all right but the worrying's already happened. And it's sometimes it's the same. It's being able to distract someone from that worry. Yeah. Cause that's it's, it's generally it's, it's, I know it's, so there are times where worrying is, it is worse than what you're worried about. There are times that happens, but a lot of the time that worry is worse and builds up this anxiety. It's building, building, building. It's not actually the thing that is causing it. It's the worry of the thing that makes the issue. So yeah, definitely. I think choosing that music, little things like that can really help that child's mood on the way to school. Yeah. Once I worked that one out, we worked out what music it was the the day before, what music we listened to Saturday morning on the way to football and we would listen, we would turn it up and we would enjoy the drive. And uh, after, and she was generally after that, always on good form. And it is sometimes it's a little tiny thing, which I stumbled across, made a big difference. And the other thing I just want to touch on is parents know their children. We always say parents are the experts of their own child. And that is true. They know their child better than they, they will know when they're happy, when it's wrong. They know these things, but they don't always have the tools. So they might recognize something is not right. But as you said, that's helping them to self-regulate. They don't always have all those tools. And that's where you can't dismiss it. You can literally go, okay, so mum said this, how can I help? Not how can I just dismiss and say, it's all fine. Is mm. Parents have recognized this, that is happening. But the parents might not have the tools. It's that the term, my sister came across the, t- the fun with masking. Is mm-hmm. my sister knew her son was masking, but she had never heard of the term masking. Yeah. So he would say she would say he's covering up. He's uh he's pretending. He's playing. He's doing. And they literally, just, they looked at her as if no idea what you're on about. Mm-hmm. And then I think she went to I think an autism show, or she went to a talk on an autism, and they used the term masking, and she sort of went. That's what, that's it, that's it. Yeah. Said masking, they all went, oh, he's masking. Oh, okay, that means, okay, cool, now I know what that means. Yeah. So sometimes yeah. there's tools, there's using the correct language that I when a mum's saying all this stuff, it's, it's maybe linking that actually it sounds, like, it sounds like masking. That sounds like My Parent might not know that's the term. And it's like when you're Googling something, if you don't know the correct term, it's really hard to find something. Then you find that correct term, you stick it in Google, and the answer is in front of you. Mm-hmm. Sometimes for parents, it's like that. They know their child. They know their child's not happy. They're covering things like doing, they might not know that's that's the the correct term that we all use now is masking. So there's lots of that goes on. It is helping, giving those parents tools, giving them places they can go to find advice because they know their child, they know something's not right. But now what? what do i do about it
1: cuz i think there's something about if you in school you've got a really good senko who's very very um, aware of emotional literacy self regulation skills how to teach them and she or he is using that with the child and supporting them to develop their own sort of toolbox to self regulate that has to be shared with the parents too and i yeah. think sometimes what people you know they'll sort of say well I know they do a bit of mindfulness or they talked about grounding or they've talked about, you know, these breathing exercises, et cetera, et cetera. You don't get good at doing that stuff unless you practice it. And I think parents are so well placed to actually co-regulate with their child. Come on, let, you know, let's do that. I'm going to hold your hands. We're going to do a bit of deep breathing together now. And I'm going to do it as well because it helps me too. This is not something weird for people who are a bit nutty, you know, because that's what one mum said to me. She said, oh, isn't that what mad people do? I said, no, no, no. It's what normal people do so that they don't actually go down the route of getting iller. You know, it's what we need to all be doing, particularly now. And making sure that parents know that. And I think there's something about on the school websites now, I think there's an awful lot of talk about recovery curriculum, building resilience, all this you know, some of it's a bit, I don't know. You've got to be careful because I think it can become a bit too simplistic. But I do think there's a, a real need for parents to understand how to co-regulate and be taught how to do it and give them support to do it. And that could be you get your educational psychologist to do a mini podcast and post it on the website for parents. So these are the things I would be doing with your kid if I was working with them directly and it would help. And you know, this is how you plan a, a Sunday evening plan a Monday morning plan to make sure your child's anxiety is reduced, but also to ensure that yours is too. And stuff around self care for parents as well in particular, how you look after yourself so that you are in a a fit state to find your own calm and then share it with your child because that is the biggest, biggest hurdle is being able to remain calm and centered yourself when your child is throwing up all this stuff at you and you are getting more emotional because you actually it's transference. You're, it's, they're feeding it into you as yeah. well. So really understanding that and, you know, not beating yourself around the head because you, you got it wrong and you actually absorbed the anxiety. And you ended up shouting at them because you got distressed. You know, no yeah. one is perfect, you know. And I think that's where this open dialogue, being authentic with our kids and saying that I'm really worried about you. I'm really concerned. I want to understand this. I want to know why this is going on, why you feel like this. No one is saying you're a bad person. No one is saying you're evil or you're wrong or, you know, you're the naughty one because you are refusing. What we're saying is we need to understand you and what's making you feel this way. You know, we're not judging you. We're not saying you're bad. What we're saying is we love you and we want you to get through this and we want things to be right for you, you know. So, how can we help, you know? And I think that's so, so, it's such a, a key
0: message to give to a child who's got anxiety around school. When we think about that working with families, if you think children are in school for six hours a day, five days a week, 39 weeks of the year. There's 13 other weeks. There's weekends. There's morning. There's evenings. If you're only doing this sort of self-regulation and mindfulness stuff during those six hours, it's not really going to embed, as you said earlier. It needs to embed for a child to use that and think about that. It needs to be done at home. Otherwise, they'll think of it as something you do in school. They won't think of it as something that will help them in their life. They won't sit on a, on a Saturday morning oh, I just need to do this. They will think of it as something you do in school to cope with school, not to help them in the rest of their life. So if you are doing that in school, you really need to get the parents on board and you really need them doing this at home as well. You need that consistent approach. We talked about this with Carol Allen and John Galloway on AAC. If you only give them a tool to use at school, Mm -hmm. they're not going to be naturally grabbing for it. They need to be always grabbing. They need to be always within reach. So all these ways of doing things, if they are doing it in school, and you should be able to do it at home We yeah. have to do it properly at home. And that way they'll start to use it and it will embed mm-hmm. rather than just doing it while they're at school. We need to embed it. And that's the best way that will become effective for that child. So you do need as schools to work with those parents and teach them those skills. It is really, really important.
1: Yeah, parents and children need to understand that they have to develop their own well-being toolbox. They've got to have their own strategies, you know, and whether that's a calm box, whether that's breathing exercises, mindful, whatever it is, the stuff that works for them needs to permeate their whole lives. So I am going to use those tools just before I go to bed at night. I'm going to write my journal. I'm going to reflect on my day. I'm going to think about the things that I do to keep myself calm and well. I'm going to actually timetable in good activities that make me feel good, that reduce anxiety. And they need to be timetabled in daily after school, before school, in the morning, Um, And then, you know, during the day, you're going to have opportunities to engage in self-regulation you're going to have regular times timetabled in to reduce emotional arousal you're going to have restorative break times because your teacher knows that that helps you you don't want to be out with a big crowd of other kids you want to be with your little circle of friends and you're going to do something that is much more restorative and helps you regulate we're doing all of that during the school day that needs to be permeated and punctuated in the rest of the day and at weekends and particularly sunday evenings if you've got anxiety around school.
0: Yeah, we end our Sunday evening thinking about school and getting them ready, so that they're just calmer on the Monday morning. They're more, yeah. they're drifting in, and it's literally just walking up, and it's all that stuff. Right, we actually start the homework thing like Saturday morning. How are you on your homework? So we don't want Sunday to be stressful and rushing because they're getting the homework done. You start doing stuff throughout the weekend, but Sunday, getting the showers, is your bag packed? Have we done? Have we signed your homeschool diary type thing? Have we done this? Is it all ready? What have you got this week coming up? How, are we prepared for this? And it's just helping them just plan. Because that's stuff you can do as easy as possible. That's the easiest part of this all, is making sure PE kit's ready, the lunch is there, they've done their homework. That's quite easy stuff that we can do without huge amounts of effort. Let's get that out of the way. Let's get that dealt with. Put aside... All right, now I can now I've got time to cope with whatever this week throws at me. And it is it's important for parents to have those conversations with the children at dinner time. And to me, I talked on a previous podcast about various things, and it's about being on the SEM register and talking about when do you have that conversation with parents? How far down the line do you talk to them? The answer is from the very beginning. And I think also with parents, if your child is struggling the sooner you bring it up, the better. Absolutely. If you phoned them 150 times and had long conversations and talked about their issue with this, they're going to listen. If, if this child is just exploding, this is the first time you've brought this up, mm. they might not listen because well, it's the first time you've mentioned it and it all seems fine in school. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So it's one of the things, if your child is struggling, is support your child, talk to the school, start early, make the teachers in school aware of it, And keep them updated. And as things change, as things get worse, help them understand okay, so he's been really bad this week. And then school can go, okay, so what's happened this week? Oh, we did this, this. Okay, so he's, that's okay, he has not. And they can then start to paint that picture because that's what you want is painting that picture and working out what is causing him more distress. So a lot of children with autism really hate the last week or so of school at Christmas Mm because all the structure disappears. Yeah. You're not wearing a uniform. You're, you might be wearing your own clothes. It's, it's just the whole school changes. And a lot of children love it. But a lot of children with autism are going, well, we're supposed to be doing maths now. I want to do maths. No, yeah. we're creating snowflakes. No, it's definitely, and it's a whole structure. So that can cause anxiety and children not bad. And it's just all those sorts of things that for so, lots of children, great. For other children, not great. So how can we change that?
1: It's about being vigilant. We can't take our eye off it now because, you know, the kind of behaviours that a child with ASD would exhibit under distress, I'm seeing now from um, children who don't have that diagnosis because their levels of anxiety are much, much heightened, you know, they're much more significant. So I think it's about looking for those signs of distress very, very early on and those little changes in behaviour and keeping that communication open between home and school and making sure that we do it at the very earliest opportunity if we don't get in there early this is when it just becomes so entrenched and it is so much harder when the child has been out for longer you know the way to make it work is to get in ASAP and that means being honest with each other honest with ourselves as well and not feeling that it's a failure because I'm having to admit my child's got anxiety and I think for some that is still a barrier. I mean, the whole stigma, unfortunately, around mental health—we know it's still there—and it's really, really difficult because also you kind of look to yourself and is it my fault? I'm blaming myself for this. There's all of that stuff going on for a parent. So, and I—I I think as well, you know, at this moment in time when. School psychology services are beginning to go back into schools. They're beginning to provide face-to-face support. This is an area that I'd be saying, you know, use them for this. They've got training in it. Most of them are really, you know, quite experienced in supporting children emotionally. When I was on the the doctorate course teaching at University of East London, We had these fantastic students who were really skilled in CBT, solution-focused work. They knew how to teach kids skills of emotional regulation. They knew how to support staff with the same kind of issues and anxiety in staff wellbeing at a whole systems level in a school. And I think it's about kind of flagging up, where can I get that additional support at this time? Because it is out there. It's about the choice. Do you choose to use it for these kids and for your staff members with anxieties? Do you choose to use it now to focus on the wellbeing of your team, but also those children, particularly with heightened levels of anxiety. And I think that there's, it's a no brainer really. You should be using this, the additional support for that,
0: that yeah. purpose now. And one thing I think we're all missing right now due to COVID is weekends used to be the time, used to be back in the old days, used to be that time when we used to do things, Go to the beach. Go to the cinema. Go to do stuff. Go play football. Have this. Meet up with friends. Go see Granny. Go do that. And we've not done that for a long while. Weekends can almost be just pot around your house, waiting for Monday. So your Sunday, your whole of your Sunday evening is now the whole weekend. You are literally from Saturday morning waiting for Sunday to go back to work or go back to school. So I think for all of us, we've got to work out what is my happy activity. Yeah. Yeah. How can I get some joy in my life? And you've got to think that as a parent, if you're not having joy in your life, if you're not having something nice to look forward to at the weekends, like it might be going out to having a Chinese meal, or it might be going down to the seaside. It might be um, Christmas markets coming, all that sort of stuff. If you can't do that, what are you looking forward? How is your mood? And then think of your children. They're going to be in the same, but you're not happy you're not joyful bringing joy to them. You are all kind of bringing each other slowly down and, and teachers, everyone. We're all in that situation where it's just everything's on pause. So you haven't got those distractions at the weekend. You can't say, how was your weekend? Wow. We had a weekend away. We went up to York. We went around the castle. We went shopping. We had a lovely meal at Pizza Express. We did all of this stuff. And all that's happening. No. We're just sitting at home and waiting And sometimes they just be they do stuff like Fortnite or stuff, which it passes the time, but there's not huge amounts of joy. I talk to this about my children. I I say to them, where are your happiest memories? How many of them are on Fortnite? None of them. Where are your happiest memories? It's on holidays. It's weekends. It's fun at the dinner table. It's where someone trips over in the park or fell over in the mud. All the happiest memories happen in the real world. Stuff like Fortnite passes time. They build relationships. But in terms of quality time, which lasts in your head, it's it's not great.
1: No, there is a point, though, about this whole period of lockdown. For people that I speak to who've managed to maintain their well-being in a good way, I mean, there's two aspects to it. A, they don't focus on what they can't control, because we can't control the pandemic, we can't control all the stuff, there's so much, so we just don't focus on it. We focus on what we can control. But also that whole thing about, I call it happiness boosters, timetabling them in to our lives on a regular basis. And for me, there are things that I know we've been able to do creatively, painting, singing, music, play piano, um, walking for hours, um, even in the rain, but doing stuff together, having a laugh. We're grown up so we can open a bottle of wine or three, two. But, you know, there's all of that stuff that I think suddenly – The thing that underpins it are connections. Yes. Being with people you love, you feel secure with. And I think that the focus we, we need to have now in the evenings or weekends particularly is what can we all do now individually and together, that's creative, that gives us a kind of sense of life-affirmingness that we need to get back in our lives, you know, the fun stuff and the stuff where we just have a laugh together or we have a popcorn night or a film night. Let's get everyone to sit down and thought storm, you know, what are the good things that we could do now in the current context, you know, because we can still have – got a big screen in my house because my husband's a film buff. We put the screen up, we have film night, we have popcorn gin and tonics and my students say no we have diet coke we have gin and tonics and (laughs) it's fun and we we choose a film but you know i think that it's about saying come on this is the time we need to really think what is important to us what is important is these relationships what reduces my anxieties being with people i love that nurture me and vice versa so let's factor in the fun now it's a bit
0: you know really really important so so with that, there's a certain level, I don't know if you call it emotional intelligence or emotional awareness that you're aware of how you're feeling. You go, I need to change this and I need to put this in. And I think a lot of adults are in that, that they can do that. Other adults yeah. won't be aware and children would have no idea. If we had to this, child, they wouldn't know what you're on about because they, they haven't got the experiences or that emotional intelligence or awareness to be able to do this. So you, if you're feeling down and going, oh, how can I make my life? Children might be feeling down, but can't. A pin on it, can't say why. My eldest went through this over the summer, and whatever I tried, all her favorite things, baking and art, and doing all this stuff. I was like, Let's do this, let's do this. And she really just, I I kept calling her mojo. She just lost her mojo. She just became meh, meh. She just meh for the whole summer. And no matter what I tried to do, it got to that point where I was trying and I couldn't push too hard because then you're just ruining your relationship. Yes. Yeah. So it ended up, I just kind of had to leave her because she really wasn't engaging. And then she went back to school and her mojo came back because she was seeing friends. She was, her head was being filled. She was being inspired. And I've talked to her since then and sort of like, and she recognized that she felt very different. Mm. I said, right now you've done this. When you feel that before, you've got to be proactive. You don't want to be, but you've got to be proactive. Um, and one thing I've just remembered, I really want to mention because I talked about this before, um, uh, with I think it was Sarah Jane Critchley, is the parents' role in this school phobia and, and emotional refusal is you are a rock to your child. Yeah, you are that safe place. You are there. When all else is wrong, I've got my parents. My parents will look after me. They will make me feel safe. So if your child is going through this emotional-based school phobia avoidance and they really don't want to go to school, as a parent, you've got to make that decision of how far do I push this? How far do I challenge them? Mm -hmm. Because if you go too far and force them, you make them go, you do all of this stuff, you're not helping them but yeah. you, not only that is you're now starting to damage your relationship with your child so you might feel there's the law school has to i'm getting letters threatening the school isn't helpful almost, almost that's like a rude word then push that aside and come back to what's important your child you and that relationship because if that starts deteriorating it gets a whole lot worse so just remember when you're thinking about where your child is on this journey if they're missing some school or if they are not in school, you are that rock. And it's really important to remember that you you are the positive person in that life. You are supporting them. You are the life raft they are holding onto in the world they're struggling to cope with. Don't make it harder for them. Don't let go. Don't push them away. Make sure that they will always see you as that rock because otherwise it makes it worse. And then you've got to try and build that relationship afterwards. Mm,
1: yeah. I mean, you. I always say to parents, look, if your child was frightened of swimming, the last thing that you would do is shove their head under the water in the swimming pool. You just would not do it. You wouldn't force them because you would get a panic attack as a direct result of that. So why, if your child is so anxious about, I'm feeling sick literally about going to school, would you say, right, you're in there, get on with it, man up.
0: You just wouldn't it. You also generally wouldn't take them swimming at all. Let them put their water in. You probably go, Right, well, I really thought I'd go swimming every Saturday morning with my child because I loved it as a child, but yeah, my son doesn't. So, oh well, we'll do something else. No. You, you, you no. change it. And school is the same. And it might be that school. That's that's the thing with school phobia And it's, it's it might be an incident in that school that's caused something. It might be a person in that school. It might be exactly. people in that school. So sometimes it's that school, not schools. That's
1: right. Of course it is. Yeah. And yet, that, when you know that, when you've done a proper assessment and spoken to everybody and found out the underpinning causes, you can sort that out. And invariably, in most instances, you can. So I think it is important. It's not schools in general, it's usually something that happened to that child, a traumatic event, whether it was bullying. One of the children I worked with, she had a head shoved down the toilet in the first week. Panic attacks as a direct result, thinking that was going to happen every day. It wasn't sorted out properly, in her view, or in our mum's view. So, you know, it's all of that. There's a trigger. There's usually a trigger. We need to find out what it is. It's like anything.
0: Then we can plan the intervention. And the mum is also – so the child feels this wasn't sorted out. They look at their safe person, their mum, and their mum is agreeing with them. Yeah. That is something that if the school cannot change how they both feel – you might never get past that. So sometimes there's another school is a much better option Yeah. because if it is that child who is in that her year, who did that, if they are the only toilets in that school, because it's a small school, she has to face that fear and that child for the next, however many years, if it's primary. So sometimes it's maybe going, right. So that's the issue, right. What's plan B is, is another school, a better solution because it is sometimes it's that location and the fear grows from the toilet to that corridor, to that part of the school, to the school. Yeah. And then how everyone who's dealt with it. So yeah. So if that horrible event happened and she felt that the teacher or a a senior leader who dealt with it really didn't do it in a good way, Mm -hmm. then there's now feelings about people and the building. So it's just sometimes you, you, you might never get them back into that school.
1: Yeah. And you have to accept that, you know, and and sometimes it is not the right context and it won't be. So, and and it's about, you know, cutting your losses, I would say, actually. And I, I have in the past worked with many parents who, have had issues with the school, we've been able to sort it out. We've been able to get to a consensus and a plan that's really worked for everyone. And in a few instances, it's actually the case that we say this is never going to work because you're not going to shift the narrative of that individual head teacher or that person who really doesn't want to go the extra mile to include your kid. And when you're faced with that as a parent, you know, then that's the time when you actually say, well, well, then we're not going to go there. You know, full stop, because it's not going to work. And again, that's about authenticity, being honest about it, and actually assessing it and, and seeing it for what it really
0: is. And I'm just going to end before we move on to uh, useful stuff that you've she- you've uh, given me. I'm yeah. just going to end with a little uh, another story from my sister, who um, she gives me a lot of material. She <laughs> has a very complicated life, and her children do as well. Her youngest has just uh, started at secondary school. And he had a choice of going to the school uh, his brother went to, or another school. And he chose another school. And I think he had one of those a virtual meet the teacher evenings okay. on Zoom type thing, and did that. And then he had the teacher's email. He decided to want to write an email to the teacher, and he wrote an email to his new teacher explaining why he chose that school. And he chose that school because nothing to do with that school. He chose that school because of how the other secondary school teetered his brother and how his brother hasn't been able to go to school for two and a half years. Yeah, And he doesn't want that to happen to him. So therefore he's chosen another school. So he's not a school refuser. My nephew's been very aware of how this school has affected his brother. And that's already had... An effect on him, his expectations of secondary school for the brother has been affected by his older brother. Mm. So there's lots of impacts that you won't even realize. And my sister sent me this email, she sent it to me, and it was one of those emails where he'd written it all himself. And once he got the words out, he was walked off and he was finished. And it was just reading it, it was like, wow, he really wanted to make sure this teacher was aware. Mm of his feelings and it was a a great email but it just showed me again that all the challenges his brother had faced he was very aware of he was able to see even though he's a number of years younger it affected him and his decisions and it's probably going to affect him how he perceives secondary school he's always gonna be on the lookout for something that might affect him in the same way it affected his brother of course so we've we've got to think of that it is this school phobia the avoidance this emotional distress that it causes has a huge impact on the entire family mm-hmm. not just that one child yeah absolutely so so you've shared some useful links so you've given me a number of books from you toolbox of wellbeing helpful strategies uh, the wellbeing toolkit for mental health and the transition toolbox uh, from you. You've also just mentioned before we started recording, you sent me another book. It's going to be published soon and available soon. So that'll be in there as well. Yep. You've also given me a link to the West Sussex County Council Education Psychology Service, Emotionally Based School Refusal Guidance for Schools and Support Agencies. You give me a link uh, and all the details around Anxiety UK and also Childline. Yeah. So if you are a parent, you've got lots of things to go and read. and. I always think if you're a parent, if some of these resources are for schools and they're not that effective, I would personally buy them because it then gives me an insight of how the schools are doing with things. And also the same way the other way around. If you're a teacher, have a look at some of the parents' stuff because it's that consistent approach. And I know when my my sister was uh, supporting her son, somebody came along and recommended five books that she should think about reading. My sister reached past her and got all five books off the shelf, all well-worn, well-read. Love it. (laughs) So uh, to me, although some of those things are aimed at schools, you might find that there's a lot of content you can use as a parent. Yeah. So yeah. Well, the, t- the Toolbox
1: of Wellbeing definitely was written with parents and carers in mind, so totally straightforward. And that is to actually teach them tools to self-regulate and to support their kid in regulation. So hopefully that is really, really appropriate for parents and carers.
0: So big thank you for today. It's, um, it's a topic that I enjoy talking about because of being involved with my nephew and my sister's journey and seeing that impact seeing how he has changed over the last few years and literally kind of there's a shell of a boy the boy i used to know has kind of disappeared he's starting to come back this year for various not quite sure why but he's coming back but it is literally seeing that and meeting up with my sister at weekends huge impact because the damage from the week at school Lasts onto the weekend and then school refusal, and just not trusting other It has a huge impact on his life, her mm-hmm. life, Christmas, weekends, seeing family. Ask my sister what a holiday looks like, and she'll look at you very blankly. Mm-hmm. So, all these things have a huge impact on people. So, it's something I like discussing. I like to raise awareness. I want to, um, people listening to just change. Hopefully some of you look at me going "You yeah, just spent the whole of this podcast nodding with uh, me and Tina agreeing with everything. Great. Excellent. Other times other people are going, okay, I've not really thought about this. I've not seen it. That's, that's great. If I can make a difference to one child, if this podcast makes a difference for one child? I'm really happy because mm-hmm. that means we're making a difference. Yeah. So to me, it's a big area and really important. So big thank you for discussing this with me today. So all those things I've mentioned will be going in the show notes, and you can find them on our website, www.thesencast.com I'll also be sharing Dr. Tina Ray's contact details. Thank you for listening to the show. If you haven't subscribed already, you can subscribe by going to our website, www.thesencast.com You can also sign up for our newsletter to keep up to date with all the latest news. You can also follow us on all the social medias, like Twitter, at The Sendcast, on Facebook, The Sendcast, on Instagram, The Sendcast, and LinkedIn. Just search for Sendcast, and you will find us. If you want to get in touch, let us know your thoughts, suggest topics, anything else, please send an email to hello at the sendcast.com. And as always, if you've enjoyed the sendcast, please look into the virtual send conference. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, this is a conference like the Sendcast is run by us here at B Squared. It covers all aspects of special education needs and disability. And what makes this conference different is accessed across the internet. You do not need to go anywhere. The conference runs twice a year in March and November, and each conference has 12 highly valuable sessions. Designed to help you is something you can take away and implement in your school and, again, make a difference. You can buy tickets for future or past events. The videos are always available, and the cost for each conference is £60, and this covers the entire school, not per person. So it's really good value and a really good way to make sure that all staff are receiving training around SEN, not just the SENCO. All staff can get trained in a cost-effective way that is very effective. Um, And as listeners to SendCast, we are offering a 10% discount just by using the code SENDCAST10, no spaces. And for more information, go to www.virtualsendconference.com. And if you are a parent, we have launched Parent Talks, which is a similar approach, but designed for parents. The cost for Parent Talks is £10 per family for all 12 sessions. And there is introduction from David and Carrie Grant uh, going to talk about their journey bit and things like that and for more information go to www.virtualsendconference.com forward slash parent so thank you we'll be back next week with another episode of the Send so goodbye from me goodbye from me bye-bye